0: This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Carmine Bruno, the founder of online antiques marketplace, The Bruno Effect. As the likes of First Dibs and Cherish have embraced a transactional click-to-buy model for buying and selling online, Carmine is going in the other direction. He's built something of an old school system that connects dealers with shoppers, then gets out of the way. I spoke with Carmine about the growing pains of entrepreneurship, why he thinks there's room at the top for another online marketplace, and how the internet has changed the culture of the antiques business. This podcast is sponsored by Universal Furniture. At this year's Fall High Point Market, Universal's Learning Center hosted 15 designer-focused events over five days. If you missed an event or would like to see it again, visit universalfurniture.com/marketevents. Didn't make it to their showroom? They're offering virtual walkthroughs of their 115,000 square foot space. Visit universalfurniture.com/fallmarket to book a virtual walkthrough with one of their designer concierge team members to get you caught up on everything that's new. This podcast is also sponsored by Amazon Ads. Is your brand looking for effective ways to reach home and furniture audiences? According to a 2022 Kantar study, 81% of mattress customers discover a new brand or product when they visit Amazon.com. Wherever they choose to shop, Amazon Ads can help brands like yours reach home and furniture customers throughout their shopping journeys, both on and off Amazon's store. To learn more, visit advertising.amazon.com slash homegoods. And now, on with the show. We're literally jumping into this conversation mere mere minutes after learning that, that Britain will soon have its uh, its third prime minister of 2022 what's your reaction to the announcement about uh, Rishi Sunak
1: you know who'd have thought this would have happened only a couple of months after replacing Boris but it has and um and here we are so we'll wait to see what the next uh, few weeks
0: hold for us <laughs> well he's the he's the comeback kid right? right so he's uh, he lost in the last round to Liz Truss but he didn't he didn't have to wait long to come back exactly there's a, there's a message in there for all entrepreneurs
1: and business people which is never give up right always stay optimistic and never <laughs> give up because you never know when your
0: when your opportunity is going to be there seriously though does all of this chaos as as riveting as it is to to watch play out when we saw Liz Truss, the soon-to-be former prime minister, come out with this, with this economic package, all, all, all of these tax cuts and sort of unfunded mandates, as we refer to them here, and we, and we saw the collapse of the British pound, and we, and we saw the, the, the guilt market in the UK rise so dramatically, does all of that have a meaningful impact on the business that you're in? Uh, the simple answer, I think,
1: is no. We're an international marketplace. Over 50% of our traffic, so users who come to the platform to source inventory and ultimately transact directly with dealers, they're coming from outside of the UK. And actually, you know, dare I say it, the collapse of the pound actually made transacting with British-based dealers more appealing because you know, sure. the US dollar was, was stronger. So in fact, about 75% of the, the sales that we know about um, that happen as a result of a connection made through TBE uh, are coming from US-based um, buyers. So, yeah, we think that's you know had a it's not a positive impact uh, for for the country and 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 for the economy. But certainly for for our business, we've seen an increase appetite since the, the the dollar had strengthened significantly against the pound.
0: You just referenced. TBE so let's let's quickly get listeners up to speed and and tell them about the the Bruno effect and then we'll we'll get into some of what's been going on for you in this in this past year
1: yeah sure so the bruno effect is ultimately a new marketplace with the main objective to connect buyers from around the world with high qualified vetted dealers dealers predominantly based in the UK across Europe and and in America. And all dealers that, that sell on the Bruno effect are offered their space through invitation lonely. So we launched the marketplace just under a year ago with several hundred dealers. We haven't allowed any new dealers to come to the platform yet. And we've spent the last year building up our audience. So marketing to predominantly interior designers quite different to, to most marketplaces and digital businesses. We're not transactional. We're actually a lead generation model. We feel that in order to make a transactional business work, which is by transactional, we mean, you know, checking out on the platform. The only way we'd be able to do that is if we anonymize sellers, right? So far from that, we're a, an open platform where communication and relationship
0: building is is central to to what we offer. So just to quickly break this down for listeners, in e-commerce, most businesses are transactional, meaning that you add an item to your shopping cart, you give them your credit card, you press a button, and ideally, it shows up at your doorstep a few days later. That's it. Your model, I'm browsing the Bruno effect, I see a candelabra I like, and instead of clicking to buy, I send a note to the person selling it. And then we communicate and figure out a price and a shipping arrangement and all of that on our own, basically. And we were talking about this recently, but this model that you're executing currently is reminiscent of First Dibs 1.0, right? And we'll we'll share with listeners your your connection and your and your history with First Dibs, but this model seems to be very similar to what that early model was it was a listing for dealers a a place of discovery a place where designers and and others could come and find antiques and and collectibles from around the world
1: correct so yeah i mean when we look at high value items online often that model is subscription based right so if we look at how we buy and sell homes Despite many efforts of trying to get that all through an online funnel, it's never worked. And actually, it's a subscription-based lead generation model. Um, high-end motor vehicles; it's predominantly subscription-based models. So, you know, we believe strongly that when you're dealing with the the middle to the top end of the market, and you're spending, you know, on average, ten, fifteen thousand dollars an item, we don't believe that being forced through a funnel and having to go down a,
0: a checkout route is the option that everybody wants to take. So when we hear that description, the question of how do you make your money? Where does your margin come from then? So you're not getting a, a percentage of the of a, the transaction. Often it sounds like you're not even aware of the transaction happening, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, we predominantly make money through charging a monthly fee to to list your inventory on our platform. In addition to that, all dealers have different size inventories, right? So some dealers might have a thousand items where another dealers might only have 200 items. And by the way, the dealer with 200 items, total value may far exceed the dealer with you know, several thousand items. So it's not necessarily about on price point, it's about, you know, size of inventory. And, you know, one thing with online is, is that the larger your inventories are, the generally the more value you will get out of a marketplace. So we also charge a per item fee. So for every item that you have listed on the site, we charge a fee for that item each month. So that means a dealer with a 1000 items will be paying relevant to the size of their value and inventory as a dealer with a hundred items. And that's sort of our way of commission for one of a better word. So, um, that ensures that there's balance across the whole marketplace for the sellers.
0: Your hope is then, if I understand correctly, is to be a vetted marketplace where you're deciding who are the dealers that are worthy of of being on the on the site in in your estimation and then they're they're paying to to list a, a, as many items as as they see fit from their inventory on the on the site
1: yeah that's correct i mean it's it's as simple as that and you know we don't want to compete with any of the market leaders we've identified that there's a there's currently a space that's been unoccupied, and that's for a marketplace that invests heavily in its brand and its user experience, but also only works with the the very best dealers, right? And for us as a family-run business, you know, we don't talk about growth. We don't talk about you know how do we accelerate quick and um, maybe unsustainably. We talk about how do we create the best experience with the best dealers to attract the very best buyers. And it's a liberating experience for me, um, having come (laughs) from a, you know, from a hyper growth business previously. At the same time, we are self-funded, right? So we do need to eventually make money. But our business model and our, our overall plan will have us as a sustainable business within the next 12 to 18 months. And You know, you spoke about First Dibs 1.0, which was a highly profitable business back then, right? Mm. So not only was it very successful for for sellers and very useful for, for designers, it was also a profitable business.
0: You talked about the hyper-growth business that you were working for just prior to going out on your own. And of course, that business is indeed First Dibs, what First Dibs had, had become long after Michael Bruno had had left. But you also referenced the fact that despite your youth and vigor, you've actually been in this business for quite some time. So let's, let's tell people your story and, and how you ultimately got into this Business and and ultimately had a company that was acquired uh, years ago by First Tips.
1: Yeah, so early two thousand and six, I actually I, I started working for a, for an art dealer who had a web development company. I was working in the business development and looking at ways that we could you know sell more websites to dealers. And bearing in mind, you know, a lot of dealers never even had email or
0: internet connections back then, let alone, you know. Websites. It's hard for me to imagine 2006, I mean, what they could have had. Oh,
1: I can remember very well. And um, soon after I, I, I joined that business, I realized that there was an opportunity if we were building websites for, for dealers that we, within our servers, we held inventory. And if we was able to aggregate that inventory and then present that in a central marketplace, you know, we would then essentially have our own brand and our own marketplace. So that's, that's basically what we did. Within a few years, we'd built online galleries.com to, to the UK's leading antique marketplace. So traditional antiques, we, we only allowed dealers on the platform that were members of leading trade bodies. So in the the UK, the British Antique Dealers Association, for example. Um, and then in 2012 we was approached by by Michael Bruno first and he was in london and, and and we we met we had similar views for the for the future of of the industry and this was you know months after Michael completed the the, the first round of investment for for first dibs and mm. pretty much in that meeting Michael said we we want to buy your company and you know eventually it was very clear that it was the right thing to do right it was a way for you know i was sitting on a marketplace that actually i didn't know how to grow i didn't know how to scale and i felt that you know joining first years would give me that opportunity and also you know having them having raised a significant amount of money you know having a checkbook that that you were able to open up and and put your ideas against and it was an offer that was too good to be true so i then joined first dibs and uh, they acquired online galleries and as part of that acquisition i assumed the role of managing director international for first dibs so mm. when i joined first dibs the vast majority of sellers were were based in the us and when i left i believe it was around 50% of sellers or so were based outside of the us and most of that growth was a result of of the business that i was i was running um I was part of the team that took the business on the journey from transitioning from a lead generation business to a to a transactional business where where the business checks out online. And it was during that process that I realized there was an opportunity for a alternative marketplace that can work alongside a transactional marketplace. And, and that's when I I took that leap of faith and, and decided to to launch my own business.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that period of, of time because at first it was a, a gradual transition and, and it, it seemed as if um, Michael, Michael Bruno himself was not at all comfortable with First Dibs transitioning from this, from this marketplace, from this place of, of discovery to essentially becoming uh, an, an e-commerce Site right, which was which was what the the model was that the that the new investors and 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 the new CEO was was pushing for. Correct. Well, you know, firstly, I mean, I
1: wasn't on the board at first, so I, I don't actually know Michael's <laughs> opinions on the direction that the company was. We going we, in.
0: <laughs> we can read between the lines, though, um, can we? I mean, and he then he stormed <laughs> off and never returned. So I assume he was not
1: happy. And then, secondly, um, it was the executive team. Uh, along with the CEO that that, that moved the business into that direction. It wasn't a pressure from Mm. the board. So it was, you know, it was the natural progression for that business. And, you know, I believe it was the right direction for that business. But as I've identified and, you know, left that business (laughs) and created my own business is that it left an open space in the market. And, you know, one of the the challenges of when you are a transactional business is, is that there's a lot of complexities of serving an order, right? So, hmm. you know, if an item's based in Australia and the buyer's based in Los Angeles and it may need an export license, it may have import duties, the buyer might want it white glove, it may need clearance from the co-op in the building to get it onto the 25th floor. There's all these different complexities to, to service in an order. Additionally, there is, I wouldn't say there's a limit of what somebody's willing to spend online in order to facilitate a transaction. However, if you look at the market leading platforms their average order value is only a few thousand dollars right If you look at TBE our average price point for an item listed is over fifteen thousand dollars and this is where we believe that the you know the higher transactions are the ones that need more massaging and actually you know the most disruptive period of moving from a lead generation to a a transactional business was anonymizing the dealers. It was removing their contact information. And, you know, essentially, if you're a buyer on a market leading transactional marketplace, you're buying from the marketplace. You're not necessarily buying from that seller. And, you know, by removing the seller's information, it helps the marketplace because it helps keep transactions on the platform and it helps grow revenue. But actually, it, it can, I believe, have an impact on. The buyer experience, because if you're going to be purchasing, you know, furniture in tens of thousands of dollars, you want to speak to the expert that you know is passionate and knowledgeable and has put their own money into sourcing that piece of furniture, restoring it, bringing it to market, and then essentially having the opportunity to to pass that into your family. So for me, again, I keep referring back to that, but you know, as the market leading platforms continue to grow, there's an ever need to continue to add converting inventory to their platforms, right? So um, by converting inventory, I mean, inventory that is when listed has the highest chance of converting. And the highest converting inventory that we're seeing is inventory that's priced around several thousand dollars. If we look at the overall size of our industry, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Only a fraction of that is being transacted online across any of the marketplaces. So the vast majority of business is still being done offline. You know, the the ultimate question was always asked, who owns the buyer? Is it the marketplace? They're the ones that are spending tens of millions of dollars to attract the buyers into the platform, or is it the dealer? Because without the dealer, you wouldn't have the buyer. But ultimately the way I see it is, is that the buyer owns the buyer and they should choose their own journey. So if you're a buyer and that your preference is to remain anonymous, you just want to put your card into a checkout and have the item delivered, that's your choice. But if you're also a buyer a designer, you want to pick up the phone, you don't want your calls recorded, you don't want redaction in your emails, and you want the freedom to know who you're talking to on your terms, that should be an option.
0: We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Amazon Ads. Viewers today are cutting the cord and moving to streaming services. According to 2022 Amazon internal insights, home brands that used streaming TV ads observed nearly a twofold increase in repeat customer purchases. Put your brand in front of this growing audience as they watch premium Amazon streaming TV content such as Freevee, Twitch, And Prime Video. Visit advertising.amazon.com/slash home goods to learn more. And now, back to the show. Let's wrap up your employment at First Dibs, and and then and then let's talk about some of the issues that you just raised. So, 2019, if I recall, you you decide enough is a, enough. You 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 see the the writing on the wall of where First Dibs is going, which is to ultimately become a, a publicly traded traded company, right? And it and it does. Um, and so you decide, as you were saying earlier you you saw some opportunity in the in the marketplace for for a different kind of business and you're going to go off and and start it
1: you know i felt like my work was almost done um and i'd gone as far as i could go mm. you know i would go months without speaking to sellers and you know i was i spent 90% of my time in meetings and those meetings were about growth and yeah i just missed the the hustle and being back on the ground where i started out so i decided that you know, I, I thought for many years that I was an entrepreneur and I felt running businesses for other people is and other people's money is what being an entrepreneur is. And it's like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, I can do this, so it's going to be easy. And I'm going to leave and we'll create our little niche. <laughs> so I left, uh, I had some time out to charge, I built my business plan, and then COVID hit, right? And I had a decision yeah. do I start my business or do I sit and wait what's going to happen in the world and like everyone in March 2020 I thought this is only last a few weeks and it will be over and kept reminding myself I'm an I'm an accomplished entrepreneur
0: this is nothing that's it this isn't gonna hold me back exactly
1: that and um yeah I over the next 18 months we built the platform from scratch and I learned that I wasn't an entrepreneur, and I'm an entrepreneur in training. So that's where that that's where um, you know that's where the, the the real hard work I think has has come in. And um, yeah, so I spent we spent 18 months building the platform. We had a few delays, which was inevitable. But what gave me huge confidence was when we were talking to sellers. There was just such an appetite for this marketplace for this business model. You know, we launched with several hundred dealers. Um, And then in November last year, we were in a position that we were able to launch the marketplace. And, you know, one of the exciting things was we launched the marketplace with over 20,000 items. And, you know, I can honestly say I now feel like I know what it, it means to be an entrepreneur. And when you're doing it on your own money and you know, ultimately everything does stop at you. There's nobody above you or above them that you can go to. You, you you get to see what it really is
0: like to to run and scale a business, and and it's not easy. Well, and let's talk about why there seemed to be such an appetite among these sellers for a new platform, because all we hear. Is platform fatigue, or people are confused about what all of these different platforms are and are and are doing? We know that many dealers love hate relationship, and they oh, if there was some other platform that I that had the kind of traffic that had the the, the deep well of designers that we know are on first dibs, they would they would welcome it. Is that? Is that what they were hoping you would eventually become?
1: Yeah. I mean, the gamble for me was not dealers, right? I'd spent almost two decades working with building relationships. However, what a dealer want is not necessarily how you grow a marketplace, right? Or how you establish a marketplace as, as it's best in class. It's what buyers want. So the risk for me is was for guessing is this what buyers really want is this what designers want predominantly which is our you know our target audience our target audience is to connect dealers with interior designers and and that was the risk for me so i knew the appetite was there for dealers and i knew that we couldn't look at the weaknesses of any marketplace to try and attract dealers in we had to set our own value proposition our own core values and 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 our own mission statements but ultimately we would only succeed if there was an appetite from the buyers, not the dealers. And you do need both, absolutely. I mean, you can't grow a marketplace without supply because without supply, you can't attract demand. And at the same time, you can't attract demand unless you have great supply, right? So it's they work hand in hand. We need the, the demand and, and the supply. However, you know, it was a bit of an unknown to me because during my time in the industry, I'd had, I was predominantly dealer facing, you know, my job was to mm. to to grow supply in the different regions. So this has been a good learning year for us. And what we've seen in our first year is that there's just a strong, if not a stronger appetite, particularly from interior designers
0: for this type of marketplace than there is from dealers. Tell me what you're learning about what designers do want most from this platform what what are they asking you for what do they feel they're not getting from from other platforms where where do you see the opportunity in providing a different service to designers?
1: yeah so ultimately it's increasing transparency for them so giving them free and open communication with with the sellers Reducing friction and then ensuring that the inventory and the sellers is quality, right? So it's not a word I like, niche, but we are niche <laughs> and we are intended to be niche and we intend to stay niche. But at the same time, the power of the interior designers means that you don't need ten million visits a month in order to be a successful marketplace. You know, you 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 don't need that level of of traffic as long as you're bringing the right traffic it can be significantly lower but have far higher engagement
0: when you left First Dibs you were a shareholder in the in the company have you been have you been burning through your your vast holdings in First Dibs stock to to fund to fund this operation? because the the stock's only trading uh, below $7 a share so i i fear that it might have might have gone down in, in value uh considerably since you since you left the company and, and perhaps it's not the piggy bank it once was Well, for
1: you. Yeah. So um so firstly when I left First Dibs, I, I wasn't a shareholder, but as an employee of the company, you you acquire options along your employment. And when you leave the hmm. company, you you're able to exercise those options. So um, I left First Dibs. It wasn't a public company. So again, there was no nothing on the horizon that 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 was to say it would be a public company but um i spent a long time there and i exercised my shares and it was a significant amount of my personal wealth went into acquiring those shares um as of now i haven't sold any shares so i I, i'm still a shareholder of that company we're super obsessed about what we do and where we need to get to so we don't really look too closely at first dibs and mentioning no it's too too upsetting anyway (laughs) right i mean it's too but mentioning no names you know if if we started a marketplace and we tried to be everything first dibs wasn't we would fail Mm. right because we would just oh dibs are doing nfts we need to do nfts but our message is no commission you know no commission doesn't sell a marketplace and the only reason i follow first dibs closely is because i have a vested interest (laughs) and you know i'm their biggest router for wanting them to to succeed but as a shareholder I'm naturally quite worried right it's you know when any company burns a lot of money each year isn't growing and is in the public markets it's and their share price is significantly down from where it IPO'd it it, it doesn't give me as a as an investor um, as a shareholder huge confidence so when I look at first dibs you know one of the reasons why it worries me is because it doesn't seem to be a huge focus on anything. So as a shareholder, you know, I want nothing more for dibs to, to, to go on a rampage and to be in a, you know, into a, a strong share position. Uh, and then I will be able to start to fund TBE with some of those proceeds. But <laughs> in the meantime, you know, my whole lifestyle is at risk. You know, I've had to remortgage homes and, you know, I've had to put my money where my mouth is and, you know, complete transparency you know what i budgeted and where i thought i could build this business i was completely out
0: you know i was out by a long long way and that that happens to so many entrepreneurs right so for for this specific business where did you underestimate when
1: you delay the launch of a marketplace by 6 months but you're already at full strength in staff we're not in the business of making people redundant because we've hit a delay you know we believe in the people that we we've hired and we want to continue to work with them so you know we went for a period of about four months where even some of our marketing strategies that were committed and, and and we were we were marketing the launch of a marketplace that we didn't have a launch date for. so we were burning considerable on my standards you know by market leading standards it's change right it's probably what they you know anyone with paying fees or interest but for us it was a significant amount of money and six figures a month we were burning in the final months leading up to launch and and that's a scary time you know when your own personal wealth is going into that and I go back you know I'm an entrepreneur in learning um I thought I was an entrepreneur but it's much easier yeah Spending other people's money and and you know always having somebody above you uh, to call yourself an entrepreneur than yeah. actually doing it yourself. But the one thing that was always important to me was that to start this business was to be a family run business because you know I'd spent a lot of time working for companies previously that were you know venture backed and that's you know that's the way tech companies are generally funded and run. Um, but it does mean that subconsciously, myself, I can only speak on behalf of myself, you, you do need to grow. You mm. feel that need to grow and you do feel that need to push through decisions or fight for decisions that will, will force growth.
0: We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about universal furniture. In need of the perfect piece for your space, shopping with universal furniture makes it easy. With their extensive list of in-stock items, shopping with them guarantees you'll receive your items on time without delays. Visit universalfurniture.com slash in-stock to browse their full lineup of available items. Not a To The Trade member? Simply go to universalfurniture.com slash join to sign up today. And now, back to the show. There has been a growing perception that the price of goods listed on various sites is inflated. And so dealers secretly are wanting to sell much of their merchandise for less money than they are listing it. But they have to put this, they have to put this artificial price out there because of the fees it, it involved. So they wish that someone would go around the process and they could come and offer them the true price, but they can't. Do that so tell me how that affects this 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 whole marketplace and and how do we get around all of this if you look at how the model worked 20
1: years ago or even 10 years ago you know dealers in america would travel to europe and they would buy container loads of furniture from dealers in europe they would send that back to america and they'd price it for the american market right if we fast forward 10 15 years and all of these sellers in europe are now able to access American buyers, they no longer need to sell items at a lower price to dealers in the US, who then go and pass those items over to designers or you know collectors in the US. So rather than price into their market, they're price into the US market, for example, right? So that's one of the the, the issues that the internet has presented itself. The second complexity to that, with being a transactional marketplace, is again these are one of a kind items. These are not supply chains items. So a commission for a retailer or a marketplace is not factored in to the production costs of these items, right? This is why contemporary is probably a little bit more suited for the transactional model because with contemporary makers and manufacturers, they factor in 20% commission, wherever it may be. But with antique and vintage, that isn't the case. So when the business model was changed, And dealers started to make first sales. I think what was happening there is realised. Oh, hang on a minute! I've given a twenty percent discount. I've then been deducted Mm. commission. Actually, there's not a lot left here for me. So naturally, everything started to go up. I think. And then I think you know the bigger problem for me is is that you know if you listen to all of the marketplaces, they they all talk about price and there's a perception that things are, are overpriced on their platforms versus you know what the true reflection of a price would be directly with the dealer. I think everybody's aware of that now. And what's not helping is is that when you look on marketplaces and they have that eBay type approach where it's, mm-hmm. okay, this Eames chair is selling for 10,000, but the average sale of an Eames chair is 6,000, right? And everything's been there to you should be buying on price not quality um mm. it just starts in my opinion to sort of breed the wrong culture and the wrong mentality both from how a dealer prices their items to how a buyer looks to source their items so i ask myself what do marketplaces need to do in order to become profitable because if they are not growing something has to give no matter how much money you right. have in the bank something has to give right and is it commissions need to be 30% or 40%? Is it, you know, you should eliminate all contact? I think there's a few marketplaces in Europe that the marketplace owns all the conversation and that, you know, stops the bucket from leaking. I I don't know the answer. And thankfully, that's not my problem. That's the problem of all the different (laughs) marketplaces out there trying to figure that out. But all we know is is that, you know, we expect as we grow our supply that that pricing will be reflective of what's in a dealer's gallery because a we're not going to be encouraging users to you know offer 50% below and b um dealers are not having to factor in commissions and fees from us you know they pay a very low monthly fee and that gives them the opportunity to market themselves within our platform and that's our job you know we spend tens of thousands of dollars each month through different marketing strategies to raise the awareness of TBE and we spend that money in order to bring qualified buyers into our funnel which is TBE and then for a small monthly fee we give you know independent dealers and galleries the opportunity to market their business to that qualified audience and that's essentially what we are we're a marketing channel with the primary goal of making those connections and then the dealers are able to go and buyers are able to connect directly away from our platform
0: When First Dibs first started to become so successful, many of the antique dealers began to question whether they needed their own physical space any longer. If this was going to be such a successful channel for them, did they need that overhead of having a a physical space or a a physical space as, as large as many of them were at the Time back on the high streets, back in the uh, streets in in New York on Fifty Seventh Street, for example, that used to just be wall to wall antique place. They're they're mostly all all gone now, and and in, in part because so much of the business did go online, and and they didn't need that. Is that is that trend continuing? Is the physical presence ever ever diminishing, or what what what's happening with that? When you mention online
1: has sort of taken that away, I'm not sure online has taken it away. Because most of those dealers still aren't transacting online, right? So if we look at the platforms they're on, for most dealers, I would say that most dealers I know, at least, they're on many platforms, but they're not, the majority of their business is still being done directly through their own channels. Whether or Mm -hmm. not leads have initiated through platforms, but in terms of actual transacting online, it's still very much an offline industry so I think undoubtedly you know if you can source the world's best dealers from your office and you don't have to travel across Europe in order to do that or the world then naturally you're going to do that more often but I still think there's an appetite for designers to travel to meet dealers and I still think there's a place for a shop but I think what's happening is is these these districts are consolidating down they're getting smaller the quality's mm. really high but more worrying for me is is that It's what sprouts out at the lower end, right? And, you know, when you see the lower end of the market where the internet doesn't discriminate, right? So, you know, if you've Mm -hmm. got a good marketing strategy and you've got a good web presence and you've got a great platform marketplace behind you, you can get as much recognition online through that marketplace, through Google than somebody who's third generation, right? And that's mm-hmm. what's a little bit disappointing for me is, is that, you know, dealers that haven't yet earned their stripes are able to come in and compete against dealers that have earned their stripes.
0: One of the things that is also disappointing or or has changed the, the experience and, and so many so many established interior designers speak to how much they learned over the years from dealers and, and and it was the great it was the great furniture dealers or it was the great silver dealers that, that taught them what to look for and and tr- helped them to train their eye and taught them the history and and really it was part of their design education was was the experience they had with with great antique dealers and no one wants to see that go away and and nothing in an online transaction can in any way replace that uh, those relationships as you've talked about that, that you've had for so many years uh, but but just that that education and then once they had that education, they knew what to look for and they knew what was overpriced or underpriced and where an opportunity was. And that was also part of the joy of the experience is that find, that's something that you've recognized that you know is worth so much more than what someone's pricing it for. And you rush in and, and buy it, right? That was yeah. that was part of the joy of this whole industry, right? Yeah.
1: And I think you know that was the joy of tr- getting on a plane and coming over to London or to Europe and And, you know, going into those stores and we want to give dealers that that voice again and for them to share their knowledge and for them to inspire and educate, because, you know, I read recently that, you know, X trillion of dollars are going to change hands from the down to the millennials over the next five or 10 years. And who's educating those and, and that audience on quality design and mm. inspiring those and educating those? And, you know, not just talking about price and, and, and offers and, and, and promotions, but actually talking about knowledge and expertise. And, and it's you know, it's, I've spoke about what excites me in my job and which gives me satisfaction. What the opposite to that is when, you know, we speak to a dealer and they say, we don't care what we sell. We don't care who we sell it to. We just need to make sales. And that's really sad for Hmm. me because when I started out many years ago, you know, I couldn't have named one dealer that would ever say that, right, is most dealers are collectors. Most good dealers are collectors and they buy what they're passionate about and they're a source of knowledge and they've had a rough ride, right? Nobody's looked out for them over the last 15, 20 years. Auction houses started to eat into their industry and started to do their private sales, Um, Mm. you know, the marketplaces changed the business models and started to, you know, own the relationship with the customers, You, you know, so they've gone through change after change after change. And meanwhile, you know, most of those changes they're being told is good for them, but actually it's, you know, continuing to anonymize them. And, you know, through my years, I've met so many dealers that have inspired me through their passion, through their belief, through the love of what they do. And very few of those dealers have ever done it for the money. They've done it for the passion.
0: We started the conversation talking about the British elections just because it's such a spectacle. Uh, but the impact of runaway inflation in, in so many major European cities, the, the far greater impact that Europe is experiencing as a result of the war in Ukraine. The, the real concerns about the coming winter and and what energy costs are going to be and and unfortunately the, the federal Reserve and 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 the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer are having to raise interest rates to to try and and tame inflation. Clearly, it's going to have an impact on on slowing the economy. How are the dealers that you're speaking with every day thinking about this, feeling about this? are they? making changes to their businesses to try and anticipate what's coming? What's your, what's your sense?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, firstly, we understand that it's very challenging times for everybody. And so one of the things that we did for our founding members is that we, uh, the listing fee for a year to help see them through the next 12 months. So all through 2023, we won't be charging that fee. So that fee was complimentary for the first six months Hmm. after we launched and then we introduced that fee but we removed that fee and we've removed it throughout next year in order to help support dealers and and we want to make sure that you know during these tough times that we are a cost effective form of marketing for them and that's essentially what we are and if we cast our, our, our memories back a few years ago when COVID first hit the first thing many companies did was cut their marketing budgets which was But TB is a startup that hadn't launched and was building a team. It was great because every time we hired for a marketing position or a social media position, there was an abundance of applications, as you can imagine, because, you know, so many people got made redundant. So we expect that to happen again. Right. We're already seeing it when we're negotiating our packages, that the companies are sort of scaling back what, what they're they're spending But dealers, again, don't have the budgets or they don't have the resources to be able to have these multi-pronged marketing strategies, right? They rely on predominantly their website and existing client base and and marketplaces. So it's important for us that we continue to keep the costs controlled for our sellers because ultimately we're still in a trial period for them, right? They're still deciding, you know, are these guys going to be able to to do what they've promised they're going to do, or are they going to not succeed like many
0: marketplaces before them? Well, and and you mentioned companies that are, that are, investing heavily in, in, in marketing. Another one of them that we haven't really mentioned is Cherish, which is another, another leader and, and they're, they're putting out a magazine and they're doing a lot of designer partnerships and doing a lot of marketing. How do you see yourself relative to, to them? And, and and what do you make of that operation?
1: If I was still working at First Divs, I I would personally be very worried about Cherish, right? So, um, so yeah, so I, I think Cherish, that the way I look at it is, is that first dibs have established themselves as a marketplace for luxury design, right? Regardless of what their average order price is, regardless of how many new sellers they bring into their platform every month. So it's very difficult for dibs to come down lower levels, right? So, you know, the more they come Mm. down lower levels, the more at risk it would be if they put lower quality inventory on to what they've established over the last 15 or 20 years whereas cherish you know from my experience was predominantly a lower order value again but they can always come up right so you mm. know when you already sort of established yourself at the lower end of the market you can always look to try and come up and try and take a share of that higher end of the market so i think those two will battle it out to be the market leader
0: right when do you see your operation really getting to meaningful profitability and what what has to happen to get you there
1: yeah i mean it's a great question and ultimately we have to get to profitability <laughs> because you know we don't have an endless supply of, of cash and equally you know we want to remain a family-run business so um, we have to continue to establish our marketplace so we have to continue to invest in marketing which we've committed to doing and bringing the best buyers to the platform we possibly can. Uh, and we need to continue to bring the best supply because without the best supply, um, it's very hard to be the, the first port of call. You know, if a designer comes to our platform and we can only service 5% of their project, we're not going to be the first port of call. We're going to be the last port of call. So over the next couple of years, we need to make sure that we continue to bring the right quality of dealers so that we become the destination of choice. So that's what we're, we're setting out to do. And we believe that in 2024, we should be in a position that we will break even. And thereafter, we envisage that we will be a very sustainable and healthily run business and ultimately then become the destination of choice when sourcing Vintage and antique furniture and collectibles.
0: Okay, so the answer is we should check back in with you in 2024, and and hopefully things will be things will be going swimmingly by by then. Well, I, I really appreciate you making the time to to talk with us. This is this has been great. I I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com. Where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.